we lead the world in facing down a threat to decency and humanity. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea, a new world order. But we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. Listening to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McRoy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to talk about secret societies and the alchemical theme. We're going to look into a transcript from an old Bill Cooper episode of the Hour of the Time radio broadcast. This is one of the last broadcasts Bill did, and I think this may have been one of the ones that ultimately sealed his fate. So, that being the case, we're going to talk about some things, belief systems within the occult and within the topmost levels of the power structure of this world, wherein we'll touch upon many themes. One of those themes is the idea of gnosis. You see, this is highly important to these people in these positions of power in this world. There is, in fact, a secret religion of sorts that is practiced by the elites of this world. And it has to do with this theme that relates to alchemy. And it goes across all these secret society groups. And Bill Cooper delved heavily into this. And towards the end of his life, he was talking on air on his program, The Hour of the Time, about alchemy and about the work, the mystery of the cathedrals and Falconelli and many of the secrets and mysteries that surrounded the writings of Falconelli. And I sincerely think, and I'm not the only one who has made this connection, there are others out there who seem to have picked up that kind of concept as well, that this was one of the things that ultimately sealed Bill Cooper's fate when it did. Because it was these last several broadcasts that he did that touched upon some of these alchemical secrets, and I think he was getting very close to the roots and the core of a lot of what it is that these people in positions of power truly believe and act upon. And I think he was getting close. And they couldn't have that, so of course, they used the whole...
concept or narrative that he actually predicted 9-11 months ahead of time, which he did. And they used that as kind of their excuse to finally get rid of him. Of course, they had other reasons that they gave publicly about this. They claimed the guy was a wild card. He was evading taxes. He was a nuisance and troublesome. He had an abrasive personality. And he was shot dead in his front yard by police on November 5th, 2001, shortly after the events of 9-11-2001. And he was ultimately silenced from that time on. And he died just as he predicted. He died on his front lawn, just how he suspected he might go. And of course, there's a whole backstory to all of that. Apparently there may have been some intelligence agency types lurking around trying to provoke him by playing loud music at the bottom of his hill. And the local police were involved in this dispute, and they are ultimately the ones who shot him to death in his front yard. So there's a lot of controversy around that whole scene, but I think ultimately the thing that led to their ultimate silencing of Bill Cooper was what he was covering just prior to his death. I think he was getting close to the mark. And tonight, we're going to go through this transcript. We'll try to get through most of it. I don't know how much of it we'll get through. But he makes some really salient points here. And a lot of these things are important. Gives you a good overview of what's going on in these secret society groups and how much power they truly have in this world, how much influence they truly have. So let's get right into it without further ado. At the heart of the alchemical mystery, of course, lies a secret. Now, this is no ordinary secret. It is that which they really want us to believe cannot be told, the experience of Gnosis. And they believe if you study the occult and the secret societies long enough, you'll understand that they believe ultimately this inexplicable knowing, the Gnosis, cannot be conferred or taught. Only incubated and gestated. Now remember, all through the process of initiation, the climbing up through the degrees of the different brotherhoods or secret societies, one is never told the interpretation of the symbology of the ceremonies, of the initiatory rites, and the esoteric teachings to be found in their writings. One either gets it or one does not. Those who get it are helped up the ladder by those above them, and those who do not, do not progress. Simply, ladies and gentlemen, they do not progress, and they never learn the ultimate secret, which is what we're looking for, isn't it? Going to pause for a moment there from Cooper's writings here. This is absolutely one of the tenets of anything that relates to alchemy. It's one of those things where either you get it or you don't. A lot of the symbolism, either you pick up on it and you understand what's being conveyed there to some degree or another, or you don't. And this is what is taught in many of these occult fraternities and secret societies. There's some people that are going to get it, and some people just are going to completely miss the boat. They don't understand, and they can never understand. So the ones that do understand, they're given a helping hand from above, and they're pulled up through the ranks of these secret orders, through the degree systems. And the ones that don't get it, well, they're just the useful power base. They're the ones that you would call, for example, within the Freemasons, the, the Blue Lodge Masons. 
the ones that are conferred the first three degrees and never escalate beyond there. This is the bulk of the power base of these secret society groups. These are the ones that, for lack of better terminology, are the useful idiots for the secret society groups, and they don't realize it. They think they're part of the big club, and that they have some special status because they're a member or an initiate of these secret orders, and they form the power base around that. And of course, they'll defend the fraternity with all that's within them, and they really sincerely, honestly think they're doing good, and they're not being manipulated or lied to by this group. And they have no clue, unless they understand the symbolism, the language of symbology. They understand the alchemical thread through all of this, and they're able to pick up on those things. Then they could possibly advance further through the degree system and through the various occult fraternities, but they're helped up from above, from somebody within that system who recognizes their potential and recognizes, hey, this person gets it. So we'll pull them on up into the real power base. So that's what it is. So the, these other ones who don't get it, they never learn the secrets, or at least that's what they're told. That's what you're told within these occult fraternities. And there's a whole, a whole series of belief systems that are applied in this way through these different occult fraternities and secret society groups. So let's go ahead and we'll continue on with what Cooper says here. So he says, Somehow, the Gnosis has been transmitted from generation to generation for thousands of years. And if you doubt that, I suggest that you get into the books and look into the history and the research that he's done, Bill Cooper, speaking here, that Bill Cooper's done, and you'll find this underground stream of particular knowledge that one only finds in the secret societies and ancient brotherhoods, what some might call the secret college, is unbroken. And once you understand what it is, and you're able to grab a hold of any portion of that stream, you can follow it forward or backward through time. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. This is something that I can verify through my own research as well. If you understand some of the native symbology of these different systems presented through these secret society groups, the various ones of them, you can trace it back through time, and you can trace it forward through time. You can see where teachings have come from, where they're going, who made what changes to these teachings, and that's a lot of what's gone on here. A lot of individuals through the course of time with their own nefarious or greedy agendas have changed up the meanings of some of the symbology and some of the things taught, and they've manipulated and twisted them to the inverse of what they once were. And that's a lot of what's happened in this world. And that's why we have dark occultists who run things in this world. They've taken these old natural science principles, these old alchemical principles, and they've turned them on their head. They've twisted them, completely inverted them from what the natural order of things is. And they've weaponized this against the public that they keep in the dark about all of this. They withhold these secrets purposely from the people, from the masses, and then they claim that, well, these people, they don't understand, they're ignorant, so they don't deserve to know the secrets. And this is how they've kept it hidden for ages untold in these occult fraternities. And this constitutes what you might call the secret priestcraft throughout the course of time. 
that has always run things from behind the veil. And they're still in place today, but at any rate, I can confirm this through my own research and my own study and understanding. If you can trace this stream, there are several different streams of esoteric thought that you can trace. They all lead back to the same places, more or less. But you can follow it through the course of time and see these different changeover points in history where some of these things may have been contorted in some ways or where some of the ideas come from. And that's an important thing to be able to do. And Bill Cooper was one of the first ones, in my view, that I've seen that's been able to break this all down from the outside of these occult fraternities. So we have this stream, this knowledge stream, this information field that's been garnered through the generations and brought down through time and preserved in some of the books here that we are able to access now and preserved through the secret teachings from teacher to student through the line of oral succession throughout the course of time in the secret society groups. Of course, they don't tell us that stuff. That stuff is kept hidden. Sometimes they put it down in an allegorical text in a book or some such thing. But by and large, you're not going to get a lot of the teachings primarily from writing. If they do put stuff in writing, it's heavily, heavily symbolized. It's heavily hidden within the text. And that's what makes looking at old alchemical treatises so difficult. It's a hidden language that you don't understand unless you have the cipher or the key to translate it. And oftentimes we don't, so it looks nonsensical to us. And that's a lot of the pattern of how this information is transmitted through the course of time, as Bill Cooper's talking about here. So we have the esoteric stream of knowledge that's come down. So just to verify that, let's read on here. He says, And we find the same content and experience of Gnosis from the modern Samayama experiments at Maharishi University all the way back to the ancient Egyptians and before. We can find the same content in spontaneous experiences, in fact, from mystics of all eras. The secret at the core of alchemy is an ineffable experience of the real workings of our local cosmological neighborhood. Doubt it not. So how can one incubate and gestate such an experience? The answer may lie in the word transmitted. Modern sociologists have begun to discuss the concept of memes or complex idea groups such as monotheism or democracy that appear to have the ability to replicate themselves. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. This was 2001. Bill Cooper was talking about memes. Memes. By and large, the vast majority of people you talk to have never even heard of the term meme until the internet meme really took off as a thing just several years ago. Maybe 10 years ago, not even that long ago. Internet memes, the meme, became a tool for communicating ideas. This has been around for a long time. This has been a thing that has been weaponized in a way by these occult fraternities for a long time. And now, everybody out there seems to use the meme as a template for expressing ideas. Now remember, this was back in the earlier days of the internet. 
when Bill Cooper was talking about this. And the notion of the meme wasn't even wasn't even really in the public consciousness in any way, shape, or form yet. So the internet meme was yet to come. And now we see the power of memes today because of the internet meme. But make no doubt about it. There's something universal behind this. There's something archetypal behind the notion of the meme. And it is an alchemical concept. It's the alchemical meme. It goes back a very long time. And what he's talking about here absolutely relates to that. So let's go ahead and continue on now that I went through that little side tangent there. So he says, Memes seem to have other properties as well, such as an unusual psychic component. The spread of spiritualism in the 19th century is a superb example of a viral-like meme outbreak with serious parapsychological implications. A modern version might be the New Age movement. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So he uses the term viral-like meme outbreak. Remember, this was in the very early days of the Internet. There was no such thing as something going viral at that time. There weren't enough people on the Internet for something to go viral on the Internet. And all of this terminology came out much later. And you see, he's on to something here. This is part of this esoteric stream of knowledge that's come forward. And it's really taken hold today and taken on a life of its own. We have the notion of the meme being a very powerful thing now. And he recognized it way back then. And I think it was this, in combination with other alchemical concepts, that he was speaking of that may have ultimately sealed his doom, unfortunately. But he had some profound insights into what was going on with this stuff at that time. And here we are, 22 years later, and we're seeing a lot of these things manifest here quite readily in our view, in a real way that we can grasp hold of. Whereas back then, people didn't even understand what the concept was. Most people didn't even ever hear the word meme in their vocabulary. Now it's commonplace. Let's continue reading here, though. He says, Traces of spiritualism's meme can be found surviving into the New Age 90s with its dolphin channeling and near-death experiences. In fact, if you compare the writings of these two different movements, both occurring in different centuries, you'll find that the ideas and the basic premises are almost exactly the same. The recent film, entitled The Sixth Sense, is deeply influenced by spiritualism's perspective on the afterlife, conveying the meme directly and powerfully to millions of moviegoers. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. Remember, this was in 2001, that he was saying this, and we understand now, in hindsight, 20-some-odd years later, the power that films can have in this way to implant memes in the minds of moviegoers, to implant archetypes. Many people at that time had no idea about any of this. Now, there were some early pioneers into this type of research that were looking at this stuff, but not really speaking too much about it because most people couldn't quite grasp it at that point. But now here we are, we can recognize these things and understand them 
in a, in a, a deeper way now than we were back then because we have the internet now. This was not something that was largely used back then. It was only in its early stages in 2001. But anyway, let's go ahead and we'll continue on. So then he says, It helps folks to think of the secret at the core of alchemy as a very special and sophisticated variety of meme. Like a spore or a seed, the meme has a protective shell that is also attractive to appropriate hosts. And in the case of the alchemy meme, that shell is the seductive allure of transmutation. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. Now, I think there's something hugely important being conveyed here. This alchemical meme, it has a protective shell, but it also has the seductive allure of transmutation. The protective shell is the fact that only certain people can understand the notion. Either you get it or you don't. That's part and parcel of it. And the underlying allure of it, as Cooper puts it here, the transmutation aspect, is if you can grasp on to the meaning of the meme, of the alchemy, you can change yourself profoundly. And in so doing, you can change the world around you profoundly. Let's read on. He says, transmutation, look it up, the transformation of base metal into gold. However, even if one absorbs the outer shell of the alchemy meme, there is no guarantee that the inner core is going to blossom and the meme become active. Remember, far beneath the bitter snow lies a seed that with the sun's love in the spring, etc., etc., etc. He's talking about the song called The Rose. I think it was Bette Midler that sang that back then. And it's heavily laden with alchemical symbolism, with Rosicrucian symbolism in the song. Go listen to that song. He says, you see, for the core to blossom, a series of shocks or initiations are required, such as a bomb going off at a federal building in Oklahoma City, airplanes crashing into tall twin towers in New York City, killing thousands of people, an atomic bomb dropped upon two cities in Japan, a complete and total economic collapse. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So now he's saying that what is required for that seed to begin to blossom is some type of a traumatic initiation rite. This is what they teach in the secret society groups. This is why they go through the initiation rites. And this is why they use this initiation rite as a tool for the public. They think they're doing you a favor initiating you into their system. Let's read on here. The sophistication of the alchemy meme is such that the experience of gnosis at its core can only be stimulated by these shocks, folks. Now, the shocks that I told you about are major shocks, not just to individuals, but to entire cultures and sometimes the entire world. 
There is no doubt whatsoever that the dropping of the atomic bomb on Nagasaki and Hiroshima changed the entire world forever. So to transmit the idea complex, the Gnosis meme through time, requires a series of encounters between those of who the meme is active and those who have merely been exposed to it. From this need follows the idea of priesthoods, and then as religious structures degenerated, mystery schools and secret societies. And we can think of these as incubation devices for spiritual memes. Through the millennia, the undigested seed of the alchemy meme was jumbled together with other spiritual memes, creating a seemingly endless series of hybrid spiritual expressions masquerading as alchemy. Pay close attention to that word masquerading. However, from its first independent appearance in first century Alexandria, to its modern expression, such as Falconelli and the Golden Dawn, the secret at the core of al the alchemy meme can be traced by its Gnostic ineffableness. I'm going to pause for a second here, folks. So a couple important ideas expressed here by Cooper in this last portion. So he says here that these spiritual memes were all jumbled together to create a spiritual hybrid expression masquerading as alchemy. He couldn't be more correct. That's what I'm talking about when I say that through the course of time, people have convoluted the old original teachings and inverted them with their own agendas and their own interpretations of things that may not apply. The masquerade, and I find it very telling that he uses masquerade as a tool for seeing this. And of course, they've actually turned it into a physical symbol of things, haven't they? The mask. It's been a massive influence on our culture these last few years. But anyway, we see here that this alchemy meme or alchemical meme has been brought forward and it's been transmuted into the gnosis meme, which is something entirely different from the alchemy meme. It's alchemy. Well, it's something disguising itself, masquerading itself as alchemy. And it's been what's been taught in the secret society groups. But let's go ahead and we'll get back to the reading here. So it says, The secret protects itself, but in doing so it leaves an unmistakable footprint, and by following those Gnostic footprints, people like me can track the progress of the alchemy meme throughout the history of the human race. In the late 1880s, Dr. W. Wynne Westcott, the medical examiner for the city of London, was, it just happens by chance, an advanced Rosicrucian adept. A Rosicrucian is a member of the ancient order of the Rosy Cross, and he was one of the founders of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, 19th century England's most notable occult organization. He tells us in an 1890 lecture on alchemy that, it is never taught in so many words. It may dawn on any one of you. The magic event may occur when least expected. Just like I've always told you. Going to pause for a moment there, folks. That's Cooper saying that. He says, thereby demonstrating that he, Dr. W. Wynne Westcott, at least understood that there was a Gnostic secret at the core of alchemy. 
Now, he can be taken as an authority. He was steeped in Rosicrucian ideas and in helping to found the Golden Dawn, which was the first semi-public, gender-neutral, magical public society that accepted both men and women as initiates. He clearly felt that he was part of some larger pattern or process, and you'll find that all of these adepts have that sense of belonging to something larger, always at work, and they are for they're also known throughout history as the Builders. The Builders, always working toward the completion of the great work. Their tools don't make any noise, for the most part. And his aptly named Flying Roll Lecture, number 7 on alchemy, is of more than passing interest. It was given early in the organization's history and was presented to the group at large. We can think of it as sort of a cozy preaching to the choir type of exposition of the basic Rosicrucian alchemical tradition. But remember, even when speaking to the adepts, they always speak in the esoteric secret language so that there is no danger ever of the profane, that's you and me, listening and actually understanding what it is that he or they or any one of them at any time is actually really saying or communicating. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. Like I said, it's always a hidden secret language, and it's usually out there in plain sight. They use these tools to communicate ideas all the time, especially in news media stories. Unusual news media stories. I've noticed it myself. I've pointed it out numerous times on various shows that I've done. Primarily, uh, when Rose and I do the poppycock report... Sometimes I'll point these things out about certain news stories that seem to catch my interest because they're unusual, or they use some strange type of language or descriptive terms that you normally wouldn't associate with the story. It's a secret form of meta-communication between those people in the know. I haven't completely been able to break it down as such, and completely understand what's truly being communicated, but I could understand when there is a secret communication inherent. Don't always know what it means, but I know it's there. It's a, it's a skill that you pick up only through the course of time in studying these things. You can recognize there's a secret meta-communication going on. You might not be able to necessarily translate that, though. You see, you need the right cipher in order to decode that. And we don't always have the right cipher to decode things. Don't understand what symbols are being leveraged in certain ways and what ways they're being leveraged for those communications. But that's just a little bit of an aside on my part here. So let's continue on. So he goes on to say about this lecture, he says the lecture opens with the assertion that alchemy means simply the higher chemistry which treats with the essential nature of the elements, metals, and minerals. And this is a good direct explanation for the ancient term alchemy, <coughs> which avoids the pitfalls of speculative philology and other over-esoteric der derivations. And it guarantees that you will not understand one word of what it really means. But we will get there. 
I will make sure that you understand it. It may take quite a few nights of revelatory teaching, but eventually at least some of you will get it. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. Bill didn't get to give too many more of those lectures after this point. And that's a shame. Because if they had allowed him to live, I could only imagine the damage he could have done to this technocracy being built right now. And we need more people that could pick up the pieces where he left off and put them together in a tangible way to communicate to others the importance of these esoteric ideas because this undergirds everything in our world. As much as I would like for it not to be the case, always, 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 you find the occult at the core of all of this, of everything going on in society. Everything. It's always the occult and it's always transhumanism. They're the two variables that always turn up. And I wish it wasn't the case because I sound like a broken record. But it's always there. But anyway, let's get back to what Cooper had to tell us. He said, the next paragraph that he utters plunges us into something very strange. Westcott tells us that the word alchemy was first used by 3rd century Emperor Constantine's court astronomer, Julius Firmicus Maternus. He then quotes a curious passage about skill and alchemy, depending upon having the moon in the house of Saturn. Now, most of you are lost right there. You think he's talking about astrology. Not on your life. He's talking about time. He's saying that skill in alchemy depends upon having the moon in the house of Saturn. And if this is not confusing enough, Westcott jumps in to ask, what house does he mean? The day, Aquarius, or house of the night, Capricorn, house of Saturn. And then further confuses everyone by wondering if this 4th century astrologer could have meant the attribution as referring to Uranus. Now remember, in ancient days, astrology was astronomy. But we have to assume that he's wrong, because the planet Uranus was not discovered until 1781. So Constantine's court astrologer could not have been referring to the planet unless he knew something that nobody else knew up until the time of that discovery. And so you might suspect that this is simply bad scholarship, a case of enthusiasm outrunning erudition. Yet Dr. Westcott's scholarship in other works is sound enough. It is as if the comments are a species of in-joke. Not meant to be taken literally, but assumed to be metaphor and allegory by those who know the punchline. And since Dr. Westcott's audience included such luminaries as W.B. Yeats, S.L. McGregor Mathers, Dr. Thomas Edward Berridge, Annie Horniman, Moyna Mathers, Florence Farr, the revered author W.A. Ayton, the group's practical alchemist A.E. Waite, and the other members of the esoteric London scene. It is likely that a number of these folks did indeed understand the in-joke. Possibly many in the group could answer the good coroner's rhetorical question, even though the rest of us are left wondering what we missed. Those of you who have studied any part of the history of the occult recognize those names as some of the greatest names in the underground stream during the 19th and early 20th centuries. 
And so the secret protects itself continually, even from those who think they know it. But it is safe to say, folks, that this strange lecture provides an important cluster of clues and impressions with which to begin the hunt. Most of you would have dismissed it as unintelligible drivel. Big mistake, you see. The Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn had somehow inherited or rediscovered a part of the Gnostic secret at the heart of the alchemy mystery. Westcott, whatever his propensity for occult in-jokes, shows later in his lecture that he does indeed understand the secret quite clearly. He quotes from an old French description of the sequence of the alchemical process. Here's what he says, quote, The sun begins a special form of change in Leo in his own house. Next, Scorpio follows, and the work reaches completion in Sagittarius, end quote. To make sure that we understand, Westcott insists at the close of his lecture that to perform alchemical processes requires a simultaneous operation on the astral plane with that of the physical. Unless you are adept enough to act by will power, as well as by heat and moisture, life forces, as well as electricity, there will be no adequate result. End quote. And ladies and gentlemen, not one word of that means what you think you heard. The source for this secret would seem to be the Rosicrucian movements that have swirled around Europe since the early 17th century. The Rosicrucians had become, by the late 19th century, the prototypical secret society for incubating the alchemical meme. I bet some of you are just now getting even a glimmer of what alchemical meme even means. In 1555, Nostradamus penned a quatrain, and here's what he said, quote, A new sect of philosophers shall rise, despising death, gold, honors, and riches. They shall be near the mountains of Germany. They shall have abundance of others to support and follow them, end quote. Well, in 1614, a publicly printed text appeared of an anonymous manuscript that had been circulating among Europe's intelligentsia for several years. It was called the Declaration of the Worthy Order of the Rosy Cross. Known by its first two Latin words, Fama Fraternitis, it revealed the purported existence of a brotherhood founded by one Christian Rosencruz, who apparently, according to the legend, lived in the 14th and 15th centuries. But I'm going to tell you right now, he never lived at all. He is, in fact, a metaphor for something entirely different. In Nostradamus' time, the word philosopher was synonymous with alchemist. Here, with a vengeance, was a new sect of philosophers. The Fama tells us of the search for occult knowledge of a man called Christian Rosengrutz. He traveled to the Middle East, Palestine, Syria, Egypt, North Africa, and Spain before returning to Germany to found his secret brotherhood. Now that's the story, that's the legend. There is no record of a Christian Rosencruz having ever lived, no one who ever knew him or wrote about him, nothing whatsoever. 120 years after Christian Rosencruz's death, at the advanced age of 106, one of the brethren discovered his tomb and his uncorrupted body. This was the signal for the Brotherhood to emerge and spread their message, hence the publication of the Fama. Their message, of course, was nothing less than the dawn of a new golden age. Aha! Now we're getting into some meat here. You've heard me discuss that on many occasions. 
The announcement of nothing less than the dawn of a new golden age, the Fama, informs us that the Brotherhood possessed the keys to a secret knowledge, capable, listen very carefully to me, folks, capable of transforming society and ushering in a new era, one in which the world shall awake out of her heavy and drowsy sleep, and with an open heart, bareheaded and barefooted, shall merrily and joyfully meet the new rising sun. And then Cooper says, Remember, I told you, the secret is sometimes hidden in plain sight. Well, you just heard it. And the quote is taken directly verbatim from the next Rosicrucian production, The Confessio Fraternitis, 1615, a Latin restatement of the basic themes, but with a more direct emphasis on its revolutionary implications. It also goes to the very core of the alchemical mystery. And at this point, you've already heard almost everything you need to know except how it's done. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So we have a lot tied up in many of these teachings of these secret society groups. A lot of information in this esoteric stream of knowledge. A lot of things can be garnered from the idea of alchemy. Alchemy in and of itself, the processes discussed in alchemy, they mean something different on different levels. And there are different forms of alchemy that can be practiced. But of course, Cooper always spoke primarily of what's known as spiritual alchemy. And this is the grandest of the types of alchemies. This is the one that's the most difficult. But in order to understand spiritual alchemy, you need to understand the physical processes of the other forms of alchemy, of which there are several. There's alchemy of plants, alchemy of animals, alchemy of minerals, and of course the alchemy of the human being. This would be the spiritual alchemy. We have these different types, but the processes are all the same, and they're all girded in symbolism or symbology based upon the various ways in which the alchemical processes are performed. And each of the components of this alchemical process in each and every of these different types of alchemy can represent something different at different times in the procedure. They're symbols that are stand-ins for something else. So when the alchemist is talking about sulfur or talking about oil, or talking about mercury, or talking about salt. Many of these terms that they interchange and use for different parts of the process, or the different stages of alchemy, like the negrito process, the blackening, any of these types of things, they represent something entirely different when you're applying spiritual alchemy to them when you're applying the different phases of things to them. It's a symbol that's a stand-in for something else. And this is one of the problems with trying to study this kind of stuff because it doesn't mean what you think it means. It doesn't mean the same thing universally across the board. Like I said, each of these things at different times can represent some other idea. So without the proper context or the proper cipher, to understand what the symbol really means, you're left clueless. And it seems like unintelligible drivel, like Bill Cooper said here. 
And you don't know what's being said, and it goes over your head. And that's exactly what's intended. The secret protects itself. So it's either you know or you don't know. And if you don't know, well, then you, you're left out of the, the in-joke, like Cooper called it here. But if you understand, then you catch it. And it gives you this feeling of superiority because you know something the others don't. You understood the joke. I got that reference. Like the old Captain America meme, and of course we'll speak about memes. I understood that reference. There's so much to the notion of the meme, too, that uh, gets overlooked in our modern time frame here. But it's a hugely important idea, and it does tie to these alchemical ways of thinking. But at any rate, the primary conduit for some of the old alchemical secrets was the rise of this Rosicrucian Brotherhood, and he gave you the legend of how it came about, where it all came from. <clears throat> but this is one of the accepted underground streams of information, one of the conduits through which the secrets of the ages have been brought forward through time. At least this is how they acknowledge it in the secret society groups. But let's go ahead and we'll read on here. Because Cooper just told us that we've heard almost everything we need to know except how it's done. So we're going to get to that here. So it says, The Rosicrucians were alchemists, but the Fama and the Confession are both highly critical of the puffer type of alchemical work, who sits in his lab and actually attempts to get the mineral gold out of boiling lead. The Fama talks of ungodly and accursed gold-making, whereby, under the color of it, many renegades and roguish people do use great villainies and chosen and abuse, abuse the credit, which is given them. The Fama implies that the Rosicrucians could make gold, but found the higher spiritual alchemy to be more important, as no one could literally make gold out of the lead. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. There are some that claim that it can be done, but of course, can they prove that? Well, that, that's the other problem. They never would. You see, if you listen to what the Rosicrucians really teach, of course they can do that, but they would choose not to because it would be wrong to do that because the person asking them to do that would like for them to do that for greedy purposes. So they cannot because the whole process would be tainted because it's not from the right mindset. Or at least that's the excuse they'll give. But at any rate, we could see the allegorical in there with it when the spiritual side is applied to it. But let's go ahead and we'll continue reading here. So he says, It discussed a higher spiritual alchemy that related to the coming Golden Age and how to prepare for it. That clearly was the intent behind the publications of the first two Rosicrucian documents. The third volume, however, was very different. The alchemical wedding of Christian Rosencruz appeared in 1616, and is the only Rosicrucian document to be claimed by its author, Johann Valentin Andreae, a Protestant minister from Germany. I'm going to say that again, a Protestant minister from Germany. The wedding is full of the occult imagery and surreal metaphors experienced by Christian Rosencruz as he observes a royal wedding. 
It represents nothing less than an attempt to express the inexpressible. And after this strange work, the original Rosicrucians fell silent. And it is not known if they did indeed respond to any of the many thinkers who sprang to their defense, for many did. And there were great intellectual discussions all over Europe about the emergence of this secret order. And we must assume that if they did, the secret was kept, because, ladies and gentlemen, the movement continued and is active today. Although today there are two branches, one which serves to sort of titillate the minds of those just maybe getting started in the study of the occult secrets, and another one is a very serious group of builders indeed. Although obscure, it will be seen that Dr. Westcott's lectures serves as proof the lo that the Rosicrucian ideas maintained their continuity throughout the centuries. This alone is very impressive, but it is the continuity of content that strikes us most strongly. From this continuity of content, we can deduce the outlines of the secret, the meme itself, and use these outlines, these fingerprints, to trace the core of the tradition back through history by following the underground stream. I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. You may have heard me talk about this myself before. This underground stream of esoteric knowledge or alchemical knowledge. It's a repository wherein the old secrets lie. And they're brought forward through time, through various different avenues. And they often appear in places that you would hardly think. Sometimes in the form of art or music or various other avenues where you might not think to look for this. All part of the hidden language of symbology. But let's go ahead and we'll continue reading here. Now, Cooper says, he tells you, ladies and gentlemen, if you will go to your video store and either rent or purchase, and if they don't have it, you can order it, a film called Things to Come. It was made many, many years ago. In that film, you will recognize if you are an astute student. Many of the things discussed in the Mystery Babylon series, and many things that are being revealed here, in this broadcast tonight. He says, you will also see a symbol, a globe with wings. You'll see a war, which will remind you of the war raging right now in Afghanistan. Well, I'm going to pause for a moment. Remember, this was 2001 when Bill was broadcasting this, talking about these things. Of course, there's a war going on right now, not in Afghanistan, but in the Middle East, in Gaza, Israel. Maybe you could apply the same standards there. Being fought in exactly the same manner, being fought against a backward and barbaric people, by bombing them from the sky repeatedly until they are overcome. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. Now, doesn't that sound exactly profound? Same old New World Order, folks, like I always tell you. <laughs> It's the same thing all the time. Of course, those backwards barbarians, those Hamas, they're monsters, they're inhuman. And they're bombing them from the sky, aren't they? Repeatedly. You see, it doesn't matter 
at what time in history you exist. You could apply this standard across the board and find it everywhere, all the time. It's part of this alchemical meme. It's part of this trail that you can trace. So we have this same thing going on. He was talking about it 22 years ago in Afghanistan, and we have it today in Israel. Same thing. And he's talking about this movie, Things to Come, and how it aligns with much of what was going on in 2001 and how much of it aligns with things going on today. So then he continues and he says here, It tells of a new world that will emerge, a golden age. He says, get that movie, watch it, understand that throughout the history of the world, these adepts, these priests, these followers of Horus, the widow's son, the sons of light, the builders, have worked in the temples without windows to bring about ultimately over centuries and millennia their utopian world. Going to pause for a moment. I would also remind you they're also called the philosophers of fire, and that's an important idea as well, because they always use fire as their calling card to let you know who they are. Had a lot of fires in recent years, haven't we? Massive destructive fires seem to occur out of nowhere, decimating entire states or cities or countries, even, at certain points. But that's just a side tangent. Let's get back to this, because I do want to cover as much of this as possible before I sign off here tonight. So he says, don't doubt it for a moment. If you do, you will demonstrate that you are a fool. So don't be a fool, folks. Understand, this stuff has been planned for a good long time. This stuff has been happening for a good long time, and it is part and parcel of the communication of this secret underground stream of information from times past into current times and future times. And the ideas inherent there will be carried out in some way, shape, or form. And it always ties back to the occult. As much as I wish it didn't, it always does, as we'll see. So let's read on. So then he continues and he says, The word alchemy as a name for the substance of the mystery is both revealing and concealing of the true initiatory nature of the work, the great work. Alchem is Arabic for the black. It refers to the darkness of the unconsciousness, the most prima of all materia, and to the black land of Egypt. Thus the name reveals the starting point of the process, and the place where the science obtained its fullest expression, and the place where the building the building is carried on. However, this revelation, important as it is, effectively conceals the nature of the transmutation at the heart of this great work. No matter who you are, or where you are listening, or what you believe in, or what religion you have, what creed you adhere to, what race you are, alchemy has been working upon you personally for many years, and you have been affected by it, whether you recognize it or not. It is, in fact, it is true. Going to pause for a moment there, folks. Bill Cooper was not wrong about this then, and he's not wrong about it now. We've all been alchemically processed, whether we want to admit that or not. You see, that's part of the problem. 
We've all gone through this alchemical processing. The thing is, we were not the initiators of the alchemical processing. It was others who imposed the alchemical processing upon us to transmute us in ways we don't desire to be transmuted. It's the inversion principle being applied. It's all about control by these other people. And it's non natural. It's unnatural. It goes against the natural order of things. It goes against God's creation. It's inverse. This whole principle of initiation is a perversion of a natural idea and natural form of progression by man. A self-initiated form of progression. They've taken this natural thing that they have named initiation and they've turned it into a synthetic initiation. You see, people's life experiences, the things that mold them into who they are, in and of itself is a type of an initiation. And all people go through an initiatory process of sorts. And it's a unique path for each individual. What the secret society groups have done is they've molded these initiatory rites and these initiatory processes into a single overarching ritual that they apply to all who go through their doors. It's the same initiation ceremony in all of these places through all these secret society groups. Everybody goes through the same initiation process. That's not how it works in the natural order. They've turned it into something synthetic. It's the inversion principle at play. In so doing, they've molded the minds of these people they've put through these initiatory rites and turned them into what they want them to be, not what God intended them to be. I've actually done shows talking about this a show called synthetic initiation it's not right they've standardized the initiation process for all of these people and it's a unique thing everybody has a unique path a unique experience here and not everybody is intended to get involved in some of these esoteric type ideas not everybody gets exposed to these esoteric ideas. The problem is, we should be exposed to these esoteric ideas and make a decision from there whether we want anything to do with that or not, or if we want to entertain these thoughts or not. But these secret society groups have determined that those who don't belong to their group are not worthy to know them, so they've kept them hidden from the bulk of mankind for millennia, and the ones that hold these principles behind closed doors, behind the veil, are what you would call the secret priestcraft, behind the power, behind the places of power in this world, these dark occultists who run things, because ultimately it's all turned dark. When you weaponize knowledge against another person, that's a dark use of information. That's exactly what they've done. 
that twists towards the inversion principle all the more. So they've hidden knowledge away for their own personal benefit and to the detriment of others. And that in and of itself is inherently identifiable as something you might call evil. You see, we've, as a species, eaten from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And using knowledge against a person is a type of evil. So the sheer act of secrecy can be construed as an evil of sorts, if you want to think about this in those terms. And thereby, these secret society groups have perpetrated evil on the masses, whether that was their intention or not. Now, there's a lot of good, well-meaning people that get involved with groups like the Freemasons who think they're getting into something good, and most of them don't progress beyond the Blue Lodge. These are what are called derogatorily by other Masons of higher degrees of the system. They're called Porch Masons. The ones of the Blue Lodge, the ones that don't advance beyond the, the degree of Master Mason or go any further in the occult or esoteric teachings. They're just the broad power base that they use as kind of a buffer between themselves, the ones at the high echelons of these groups, and the public, the profane. They're the buffer between that. They defend the idea. They defend the group. They tell you, no, any of that kind of thing is silly to think that way. We don't do anything bad. We're not nefarious in any way. We don't control the world. We don't have any of that stuff. We go to boring meetings, talk about finances and that kind of thing, and maybe put on a spaghetti dinner or something once in a while. We take care of our buddies in business dealings, and we support one another. And it sounds nice, but that's the surface level. That's the facade, that's the masquerade, as Cooper called it here, behind what goes on at the higher levels of this stuff. So, to get back to the reading here, we need to recognize we've all been alchemically processed in one way, shape, or form, usually against our will and without our consent by some others, largely by media. But we need to recognize that fact, because it is true he was not wrong about that. But let's continue on from where he left off here. So he says... And it's about time that you begin to recognize it so that you can see where it will take you, because it will take you. So let's go back in history and let's begin in Egypt. For 3,000 years or more, Egypt ruled the known world. In fact, it was the heart of the world. Much of the knowledge that is the underpinning of our own modern culture had its origins in Egypt, believe it or not. Our modern, essentially European view of the ancient world is distorted by the funhouse lenses of the ancient Greeks and Judaism and Christian history. The Bible gives us an Egypt of powerful pharaohs and pagan magicians, mighty armies, slaves and invasions of pharaohs, chariots and armies out of the south. Herodotus gives us a travelogue, complete with invented stories from his guides. To the Hebrews of the Old Testament, Egypt was the evil of the world, from which God had saved them once before. 
To the barbarian Greeks, it was an ancient culture to be pillaged for ideas and information. The superimposition of these concepts produced a skewed image of Egyptian civilization. Most of what you think you understand about ancient Egypt, you don't understand at all. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. What other historical culture actually has an entire an entire science named after it? Egyptology has its own form of science named after it. Is there Greekology or Hebrewology or any of these other types of ologies? No. But this is the importance of that. And Egyptology has shaped our view of Egypt, and it's misshaped the truth about what Egypt truly was. But let's continue on here. So he says, for instance, the pyramids, or at least three, the, great, the greatest pyramids, what we know as the Great Pyramids on the plains of Giza, were not tombs for any pharaohs. They were temples of initiation, and the initiation that the ancient Egyptians performed was much like the initiation of George Herbert Walker Bush and his son, George W. Bush, in the crypt. Why do you think they called it the crypt at Yale University? To understand the origin of the vast subject, alchemy, we must let go of the funhouse lenses and look clearly at what remains of the ancient Egyptian culture that can tell us so forget everything you've ever been taught. When we do this, two things immediately jump out at us. One, the ancient Egyptians were the most scientifically advanced culture in the world up until the present day, if we have indeed caught up with them. And two, their science, in fact their entire culture, seems to be revealed rather than developed. You cannot find a point in Egyptian history where they were learning what they had. They had it from the beginning. Talk about mysteries. Going to pause for a moment there, folks. So yes, you can't look through the lineage, the time line of the Egyptian civilization and point to specific developments in their science and culture at specific times. It always seemed to be extant there. From as early as we could study it until the demise of the Egyptian civilization. The Egyptian nation or empire, if you want to call it that. It's all been there. Interesting, right? Let's read on. So he says, The Egyptians claimed that their knowledge was derived from the actions of the divine forces and what they called the first time, or the Zeptepi. This body of knowledge was passed down through the ages by a group known as the Haru Shemsu, or the body of adepts known as the Company of Horus, or the full body of adepts known as the Congregation of the Mysteries. Remember, Osiris was the doctrine, Isis was the church, and Horus was the whole body of the Congregation of Initiates. Each pharaoh down through Roman times was an initiate of the company of Horus, and so privy to this secret knowledge. And the symbol was, in those days, the emblem of the head of a cobra upon the forehead. Remember, they're also called the Order of the Dragon, the Order of the Snake, the followers of the Luciferian philosophy, who some of you call Satan. We can think of this secret knowledge of the core of alchemy in its broadest sense. However, as we look closer at what the Egyptians tell us about their science, we find that it is based upon an intimate understanding of the stars. 
We also find that it is coded somehow into many of the ancient monuments that have existed in Egypt for centuries. And if you've listened closely to Bill Cooper, things he said on previous broadcasts, he's told you that the sum total of human knowledge was always built into the buildings of the culture of all of the ancient civilizations. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. The cathedrals, same thing, same thing. Let's continue on. These monuments, such as the Sphinx and its temple, point to an even more ancient civilization from which the Egyptians recovered their knowledge. In that sense, the knowledge of the Egyptians, of which alchemy is a half-remembered fragment, is the lost science of that last evolutionary societal epoch. If this is true, what happened to end this epoch? The legend says that a great catastrophe destroyed this advanced culture. Modern scientific evidence tends to bear that out. One of the earliest of all alchemical texts is the fragmentary Isis the prophetess to her son Horus, found in the Codex Marcianus, a medieval collection of Greek fragments. This work seems to be a unique blend of Hebrew mysticism and Egyptian mythology that could only have come from Alexandria. Sometime early in what is known as the first century of the Christian era, the Egyptian goddess Isis tells her son Horus, remember Isis was the mother-sister-wife of Osiris, she tells her son Horus that while he was away fighting and defeating the evil one Set, she was in Hermopolis studying angelic magic and alchemy. She relates that after a certain passing of the Kerioi, which is Greek for the opportune moment, that's what Kerioi means, means the opportune moment, and the necessary movement of the heavenly sphere, it happened that one of the angels who moved in the first firmament saw me from above. The angel is inflamed by sexual passion for Isis, but he can't answer her question about alchemy. He bargains on another encounter by offering to bring her a higher angel who, were t who will tell her everything that she wants to know. The first angels... The first angel shows Isis the sign of the higher angel, and this sign consists of a bowl of shining water and a moon sign that resembles the emblem of the moon god Khonshu of Thebes. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. Now, you'll notice, if you pay attention to pop culture, that just a year or two ago, probably more like two years now, Disney who owns Marvel Cinematic Universe Studios, Marvel Studios, produced a TV show about the character, the comic book character, Moon Knight, who is the avatar of the god Khonshu. If you pay attention, all these things always seem to come back around at appropriate times. So we have this influence being recognized here in the modern era. Just wanted to point that out, but that has... Very little to do <laughs> with what we're talking about here at the moment, but uh, just a side note. So let's continue on. So, the moon god Khonshu of Thebes. And at noon, the next day, the angel returns with the higher angel, here called Amnael. And this higher angel also finds Isis desirable and is willing to trade for information. He reveals the mystery of this sign and then swears her to a great oath. 
In this oath we find echoes of the great mystery, and one of the keys to its explication. This is the oath, and it says, quote here, this is the oath. I conjure you in the name of fire, of water, of air, and of earth. I conjure you in the name of the heights of heaven and the depths of earth's underworld. I conjure you in the name of Hermes and Anubis, the howling of Kerkeros or Cerebrus, the three-headed dog, and the guardian dragon. I conjure you in the name of the boat and the ferryman, Archontus or Sharon. And I conjure you in the name of the three necessities and the whip and the sword. After this strange oath, Isis told... Isis is told to never reveal the secret to anyone but her son, Horus, her closest friend. Now remember, we're not talking about real people here. These characters really are allegorical. Remember. So it says, the knowledge will make them one, as the knowledge has now made Isis and the angel one. So the church and the congregation will become one. And then a curious thing occurs. When the mystery is revealed, it seems strangely flat, as if something was left unsaid in the answer. Horus is told to watch the peasant, who may or may not have been the mythical boatman, Charon or Arcantos. He then is given a lecture on, As you sow, so shall you reap. So Cooper says, Guess what, folks? This was several thousand years before the birth of Jesus, who said the same thing. As you sow, so shall you reap. Horus is told to realize that this is the whole creation and the whole process of coming into being, and know that a man is only able to produce a man, and a lion a lion, and a dog a dog. And if something happens contrary to nature, then it is a miracle and cannot continue to exist, because nature enjoys nature, and only nature overcomes nature, period. If you understand what is what it is that she said. It's not flat at all. It's a profound truth. So I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. So, understand, man cannot produce something that's not a man, so man can never become God. That's what's being levied there. We're told similar things in the Bible. Species can propagate their own species. And chimeras are unnatural. They can't continue to exist according to this profound truth. Let's continue on. Isis goes on to relate that she will now give Horus the secret of preparing certain sands. She says that one must stay with the existing nature and the matter one has in hand in order to prepare things. Just as I said before, what wheat creates wheat, a man begets a man, and thus gold will harvest gold, like produces like. Now I have manifested the mystery to you, and after hearing that, do you really believe that gold can be changed from lead? Do you believe that lead can be changed into gold? Not at all, it cannot happen. Despite what Art Bell and his guest who claims that he's done it and can do it, and others who have done it, they're full of crap. That's what, that's what Cooper says. So Cooper says it can't be done. And this was one of the profound truths that is 
actually expressed in this legend of the story of Isis here. Something cannot become something else. Evolution is a lie, folks. We're never going to evolve into post-humans. Not naturally, anyway. Not naturally. If it happens, it's not going to last. It can't last. Do you understand what's been said here? It's these same notions. This is the profoundest of truths. Man can only beget more men. A dog begets another dog. You can't mix a dog and a cat. You're not going to get a cat dog. Sorry, it's not natural. It doesn't occur. And it won't continue. So even though these, as it's referred to in the legend here, miracles may occur at some point where if our modern science is able to create some type of chimeric being of sorts, yes, it exists, but you know what? It cannot reproduce itself. Doesn't happen. Can't happen, and it will not be sustained. Nature will not allow for it. It goes against this profound truth, and it's one of the truths of alchemy. So is it really possible to change lead into gold? Gold begets gold. Lead does not beget gold. Think about it in those terms. You see, many of these secret society groups and these occult teachings, they like to teach in contradictions. They like to teach in these types of ways. They teach you both ways. So not only do they teach you this, they teach you that they can transmute lead into gold, but at the same token they tell you that's impossible. Like only begets like. So what what portion of it do you believe? They, they teach in contradictions all the time. They always do this. Paradoxes. They teach in paradox. But at any rate, let's continue on and see what else Cooper says, and we're going to wrap this up. He says, they would love for you to think that that's what alchemy is really about, because in the process of doing that, they are engaged in alchemy, and they are affecting your beliefs. They're screwing with your minds. The instruction then passes to hands-on lab work in melting metals such as quicksilver, which is mercury, copper, lead, and of course gold. At the end of this lengthy preparation, Isis explains, Now realize the mystery, my son, the drug, the elixir of the widow. Most people would be sneaking around looking for some kind of hallucinogenic potion to take. It's a drug of the mind. It's called the knowledge of the secret. It holds great power. What are we to make of this strange story? With its curiously flat revelations, well, probably not much at all without the asides that Bill Cooper has conveniently given us here. He says... And if I had not done that, possibly our very earliest alchemical text would present us with the same problems and ambiguities that we will find throughout the entire alchemical corpus or body. There seems to be something in the very subject itself that forces its image towards the surreality of pathological metaphor. It is, could be, or is it, mainly diseased imagination, or are there meanings beneath the fantasy? 
And I tell you, absolutely, yes, meanings of such profound truth, such absolute power over huge numbers of people and things, that those who understand how it works are constantly odd that it works at all, and that it works so well. With this mind, we can see that the name alchemy points to the lost science of the ancients as revived by the Egyptians, and to the darkness of the unconscious, where powerful psychosexual forces can be encountered and used in the process of transformation. Egyptian science, with its concern for stellar movements as the background for mythical dramas, points us to another step down the road, as does the realization that there is a core of reality to the process far beyond the purely internal and as we unravel alchemy's ultimate secret, we will return to the story of Isis and the angel and the origin of alchemy, but first we need to follow the trail of those who held this information. And since we've already been following that trail for so long, we'll pick it up again. The Haru Shemsu Followers of the Widow's Son, Congregation of Horus. And then... That was the end of the episode, and Bill Cooper wishes us all a good night. And unfortunately, he was never able to continue on in this teaching. But I think I can add a little bit more context to this. The notion here that Isis reveals to Horus... Now remember, Horus is the compilation of the entire body of the mysteries. This is the big secret in the mysteries... Isis reveals to him this very thing. She says here, quote, Now realize the mystery, my son, the drug, the elixir of the widow. That's what this is called. Most people would be sneaking around looking for some kind of hallucinogenic potion to take. It's a drug of the mind. It's called knowledge of the secret, and it holds great power. That's what the elixir of the widow is, the drug. The knowledge of the secret. Doesn't matter if there's a secret or not. It's convincing people that you know something that they don't. That's what this is all about. That's what's at the core of all of it. It's manipulating the minds of people to make them believe that you know something that they do not. If you can do that, then you can utilize this method against them and steer and control their behaviors in many ways, especially against the masses, or mass psychology. Cooper explained it very well here. He said... That they are messing with your minds, and they absolutely are. That's what this is about. And that they're amazed that it works so well. That they can mislead you by telling you something that may or may not be true. They use ambiguities to do so to those within their own fraternities. They give you this notion they know something you don't, and they keep that carrot dangling on the string in front of you to keep you walking further down the path. They do that to their own initiates, their own members in the secret schools, and they do that to the public, and sometimes they'll fabricate a story. They'll fabricate, fabricate some event to get the people on the hook, make them keep dancing to the tune that they give. 
Now, are there other secrets attached, perhaps, to these old alchemical sciences? I think it's feasible that, yes, they know certain things about the way the world operates that we don't. But the biggest secret of it all is the secret of how to manipulate people, and that's what they keep hidden in this stuff. It's all about leveraging these archetypes against the people, using these different tools to keep the people dancing to the tune they want. It's all about making people believe something that is false. That it, they make them believe that the false is true. Deception. It's all about deception. Keeping people in a fantasy-based reality. That's what they seek to do. That's why entertainment is such an important component to all of this. They use it to manipulate your minds. They use entertainment to affect your mind in certain ways. There's a lot of tools in their arsenal, folks. Now, I don't know exactly where Cooper was intending to go next with all of this. But I think he was on to something big. He was on the right path in looking at it in this way. And certainly, there's power in the alchemical meme. We see the power of memes on the internet today. It's a way of conveying ideas that defy adequate ways of expressing them through simply using words. It's the image. And this is a hugely important idea that I've been talking about a lot. The image. It's impressing the image on the mind. It's a type of scaffolding or archetype for imbuing an idea and then having the idea manifest. The alchemical meme. Then takes on a life of its own and can be brought forward and expressed in certain ways. So the secret society groups, these occult fraternities, these dark occultists who run things in this world, they've very much leveraged a lot of these tools against us. And the biggest thing they hold against us is this secrecy. They claim to have knowledge that we don't. And whether that knowledge truly exists or not, or whether they actually do have this secret knowledge or not, is immaterial. The fact that they can make you believe that they know something that you don't or they have some power that you don't is enough for them to manipulate you. And they've done so from time immemorial unto today, right now. They've leveraged a lot of these different tools of mind control against the populace at large. And they continue to do so. And they do so from behind the veil. And they laugh at you. And yes, there are certain aspects to this alchemical process that we live through, and there are natural processes that occur, that need to occur in this world. But they've weaponized and inverted these things against us, and that's how they use these things as means of control. They've kept hidden some of this knowledge from us, and even though it's an individual path and either you understand the message being conveyed through the meme or you don't, it's part of our walk here. And we could use the internet meme as an example of this. Sometimes you see a meme and you don't quite understand what it is because you don't have the context behind it. You don't have the cipher 
to unlock what it means. That's why. It's the same thing with this. It's just on a deeper, more esoteric level with a lot of these things. But if you think of it in those terms, if you, if you know the joke, then you get it. If you don't know the joke, you don't get it, like Cooper alluded to here. The same thing going on. They use different symbols in different ways to represent different things, and if you don't get it, if you're not familiar with the joke, then you don't get it. It's how it works. It's how it's always worked. And it's a wink-wink, nudge-nudge to the other guy that knows in the room. And then the ones that don't know, it goes right over their head, and they have an amusing little time laughing at you because you don't get it, and they do. That's how a lot of this stuff works, and they use it as a manipulation. But a lot of important ideas are expressed in this, so I thought it was a good idea to go through this tonight, because I fervently believe that this kind of a thing was truly what led to Cooper's ultimate silencing, his coverage of these ideas. I think he was hitting a little too close to the target for many of those in the positions of power, and he had enough of an audience at that time that he was making a big difference. So they couldn't allow that to stand. But I'm hoping there's others out there that could pick up the ball where Bill left it and take it forward. I try my best. I'm limited in what I can do. But there's people out there who have far greater understanding of these things than me, I'm sure. And maybe they could take it a step further. And maybe they could communicate it to the people better. But for now, I'll do my part. You guys do your part. We have to go ahead and try to get information like this out there. We need people to understand. At the end of the day, it always ties back to the occult. Whether they want to admit that or not, it always does. And it always ties into the transhumanist philosophy and notion of things. Always. Wish it wasn't the case, but it is. And that's what we have to work with, and that's what we have to express to people. And sometimes we have to go into difficult readings and difficult types of things to understand to express that. That's what got me digging into this type of work. A lot of things lack the proper words to express. So you need to look at the symbols and the images and put it all together to try to convey the idea. The ultimate meme. That's what it is, the alchemical meme. You have to put the meme together in a way so that people understand the joke. That's what it's all about. Anyway, folks, that's all the time I have for tonight. I want to thank you all for tuning in. I want to remind you I appreciate each and every one of you. We'll catch you next time. Have a good night now. Come with me.
my plan to save. 